Good morning. Glad everybody that I see is here. I know we've got some under the weather, and maybe you just woke up and decided you'd watch online since you forgot to set your clock back. I, with my new little iPhones, they change themselves, and so we ha I have no excuse for, for being late anywhere I go. It's just my fault when I am. Uh, Psalm 70, if you can find it today, we've got a, a short, only five verses today to look at. I want to do something a little bit different today after we sort of look at the context and, and those kinds of things. Uh, we're going to sort of apply as we go today, um, sort of the last, well, quite a few Psalms have been lament, and, and this one is as well, and I, but I want you to see some things. I want to guard, you to guard against something that I think is dangerous in our day. And so let's first stand to our feet as, as we say, as we stand, that this is the Word of God. This is the authority. And uh, we bow to that authority this morning as we stand and as we read. Uh, notice the heading. It says, to the choir master of David for the memorial offering. Make haste, O God, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let them be put to shame and confusion who seek my life. Let them be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let them turn, let them turn back because of their shame who say, Ah, ah, may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say forevermore, God is great. But I am poor and needy. Hasten to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer. O Lord, do not delay. Let's pray together. Lord, all of us at some times, and, and maybe right now, feel the way the psalmist feels. If not, one day we will. If not today, we remember a time where we felt exactly the way the psalmist feels, and so we can relate to him today. Lord, whether we felt this way or not, Lord, prepare your people for that which they are in or that which is to come, or heal them from that which they've been through today, Lord. We are saying today with the psalmist, Lord, we need you. You are all we have. So, Lord, teach us today in your word, and we will be grateful, and we will give thanks, and we will worship you in Jesus' name. Amen. So, interesting little tidbit about Psalm 70. Um, you can flip back to Psalms 40, and you can find almost, with just some little changes, this psalm. It's an excerpt, if you will, from Psalms 40, taken out intentionally and put to a song by itself. Um, there's a feeling of stress, of urgency, even in the original language, a choppiness. It's supposed to meant to understand that almost invoke a panic of what the psalmist is going through. Um, and so that's the that's sort of the context. Um, we can sometimes, even if you looked at Psalms 40, 
what Psalms 40 is interesting that this is taken out of because Psalms 40 talks about sometimes we're in a panic because of our own actions because we did something wrong and sometimes it's because of somebody else's actions. Psalms 40 covers both of those. But when we comes to Psalm 70, it's about somebody else's actions that's done to us. And so interesting as well, notice the heading. It says this is a, was offered at a memorial offering. Uh, Psalms 40 speaks of offerings in it as well. Uh, let me just read one little couple of verses. In Psalms 40, verses 6 and 8, it says, In sacrifice and offerings you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I delighted to do your will, O oh my God. Your law is within my heart. This common reality of theme that's in the Bible that, that offerings, the sacrifice of animals and blood and goats was never meant to be a permanent thing. It always pointed to something greater. And the issue that it tried to help us understand was the problem, was the heart problem. But why, why is this part of a memorial offering? Is it, that's the interesting aspect of this. The, the memorial offering was an aspect of the grain offering. And we don't have time to look at it today. It's an interesting study. The Old Testament had a sacrificial system with five offerings that were part of the life of the Jewish people. The grain offering was one of those offerings. And the memorial offering was a portion that was inside the grain offering. There was a piece of the memorial of the grain offering that went to the priest. And there was part of it that was burned on the altar. Um, this wasn't for sin. That was the other offerings. This was, there's a little bit of mystery behind it because Leviticus doesn't tell us a lot about it. But it seemed to be part of the first fruits. You offer your first and best. This offering was an offering that goes before the law. Remember, even back to Cain and Abel, we offer our first and our best. We bring an offering to God and we bring nothing back from it. All of it goes to Him. And so it's, it's a, the word memorial means, makes sense, it means to remember. We're calling not only of ourselves to remember, that everything that we have in their day, all of their crops, all of their jobs, all of their sustaining from one week to the other came from Him. And so that offering was that of thanksgiving. It was also to remind God, you're all we have. God doesn't sustain me next week. I, I will not be sustained. So that's the heart, sort of the context. But I wanted to warn you about something today that seems to seep into Christianity. And it is this idea that, that, we, that we give in order to get. Listen, by the way, that's pagan. The pagans venerated their gods in order to get something from them. They wanted crops, they wanted children, they wanted whatever, they wanted to win a battle, they wanted whatever. They venerated their gods, they offered something to their gods. They did that for a reason, because they wanted something from their god. That's not Christianity, that's pagan. 
No Old Testament sacrifice did this. They, they pointed us to our shame and our guilt. It dealt with that, and then we responded with fellowship, with thanksgiving, with dedication. That was a sacrificial system sort of in a nutshell, all fulfilled in the person of Jesus who removed our shame and our guilt. And as a response, we live lives of dedication, of thanksgiving, and of fellowship. So that's the foundation of this psalm. It's the foundation of all urgent pleas. It is the foundation of what this is, which is spiritual warfare that we have to fight in some of the hardest times of our life. There are two groups of people in this psalm. Those who seek his life, who he is urgently praying for God's justice. Uh, They're right at his doorstep, on his heels, so to speak. But there's also another group of people here. You're going to see it in a minute. Those who seek God. So he prays for God's blessing. In, in desperate times, we all have a default of what we do. Don't have to think about it. When times get bad, you're going to do something. You're going to go to a default. And here's what I'm afraid we've, we've all embraced to some degree. It is the philosophy or the ideology or even the belief system of self-help. And we're either going to have to intentionally pursue God's help or we will automatically default to self-help. And so it's it's everywhere. Listen, it is the main idea of every Disney movie. They're indoctrinating you with with their little characters, with this little warm, fuzzy, happy ending where, where, you know, where the mansions come out of the ice and whatever... And, they, and why, why did it come out? Or why did this big thing happen? It happened because you tapped in to what was already inside of you. Right? That's the message. It's there. It's just, it's just right under the surface. You just got to, oh, I did it. Nothing new. We can't say this is a young idea. Some of those old people music sings it and celebrates it, right? I did it my way. It's, it's not a new thing. It's not a n- new mantra. I'm the master of my f- fate and the captain of my ship. I didn't start yesterday. I've been singing, saying that at graduations for years. I read something this week. It said 60% of so-called evangelicals believe that God helps those who help themselves. is actually in the Bible. It's not, by the way. <laughs> it's not in the Bible. Every dangerous belief has a kernel of truth. And that started in the garden. The other extreme. When something's really bad, what do we do? We fight, flight, or freeze. <laughs> We're going to do something. What are you, you going to do? What are you doing now? What have you done in the past? So we're not saying, the Bible doesn't teach laziness. This isn't uh, let go, let God. No, there's things that we must pursue. So I want you to see that this morning. Four prayer-filled pursuits that move us from self-help to God's help. We're just going to sort of apply as we go. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about self-help to start with, and then we're going to look at the text. 
And see what David's sort of pointing us to with God's help. Self-help is dangerous because it is self-reliant. It's, it's intrinsically self-reliant. It's naturally. It's, not only is it self-reliant, it is, it is selfish, which means it is prayerless. If, if you're struggling with this, whether you know it or not, you just need only to, to take a pulse on your prayer life. Because if you're not, your prayer life is not healthy, you have embraced an element of self-help. You're doing it yourself. As long as you can do it yourself, you don't really need him. And matter of fact, if you do have a prayer life, it's probably radically self-centered. Much like an independent child who doesn't really want help, but they can't get their pants on. You know, so you have to go in there and help them get their pants, but they don't appreciate it. They're just, they're just mad at you for helping them, although they can't really help themselves. You see, the, this idea, this is the point. It's, it's just a logical thing this morning I'm asking you to think about. Self-help is not really a livable reality because sooner or later you're going to get to a place that you can't fix, that you can't deal with that you can't handle it, that you didn't ask for it, you don't want it, and you don't understand it. And self-help just says, try harder, dig deeper. It's just right there. What happens when you can't? Then you're a failure. It's dangerous. Turn with me to James 3. James 3. You might want to mark this. I'm going to come back here, make two points out of this same text this morning. James 3, just look at verse 15. Now, we're going to go back and see what the this is in a minute. James 3, 15 says, This is not wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Verse 16, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist... There will be disorder in every vile practice. So not only does this pagan wisdom not work, it produces chaos in your life and immorality. That's just what, where, it, where it goes. In contrast, God's help is radically God dependent. Now look at verse 1 of Psalms 70. It says, Make haste, O God, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Uh, make haste, if you see the title of the sermon, that's where it came from. Make haste just means hurry up. That's what he's saying. Hurry up, God. This, this thing that's this about to happen... I don't have time to wait. It's urgent. It's right there. They're, they're right there, whatever it is. Deliverance. Deliverance is what he's asking for. But notice how he addresses God. It's, it's, it's important. These names for God is important. He said, oh, God, deliver me. This God is Elohim. It's the God of creation. He's pointing to God's transcendence. Another way of saying his bigness. God is big. 
That's just a trite way of trying to describe God. Another way to say it is God is no wishy-washy human. He's the sovereign, unchanging God. He banishes demons and he raises the dead. That's God. He's praying for that God to help him. He's not only praying to that God, he's also calling him Lord. Do you see it? Oh, Lord, help me. That means support me. I got I to gotta find something to lean on to support my weight because I can't stand up. You ever been so tired you just can't stand up? That's what he's saying. Not only can I cannot do this on my own, I can't even stand up on my own two feet. And what he asked for is his covenant Lord. Now that looks at something different. That looks at God's closeness. Elohim looks at his bigness. Lord looks at his closeness. He is the God who covenants with the people and never breaks his promise. This is the God, the creator, who stepped into the time that he created to reconcile a people. This is the God we pray to. Listen, this was the Lord that he prayed to. This is no self-reliance. He doesn't have any other choice. You know, have you ever felt like, this is like bad for me to say out loud, but it's just true. We feel this way sometimes. Like God's like playing a joke on you. Or, or, or maybe worse, I've done something wrong. You know, if I could just figure out what it, what it is that I'm doing wrong, this, this trial would like go away. Is he punishing me? And listen, if you've never felt that way, you're just not being honest with yourself. Is he punishing me? Is it my fault? I mean, what is it? Show me and I'll, I'll repent of it. Uh, let's just remember 1 Samuel 13, 14, God called David a man after his own heart. And though we like to pick on David for the couple of things that it records that he did wrong in his life, by and large, if we look at David's life from beginning to end, this was a man who lived in close fellowship with God all of his days. And yet his life, the message of his life was, hurry up, God, I'm in trouble again. It's comforting. He felt just like Peter did. Remember what Peter said, John 6, 68? Lord, where am I going to go? What choice do I have? You're God, you're Lord. There's nobody else that can help. There's nobody else that created everything. There's no other religion where God climbed down the mountain to reconcile you. All the other religions tell you, you got to climb up the mountain yourself. Right? Mm-mm. David and Peter both said, no, I think I'm going to go with the God help. So in times of despair, self-help is no help at all. And it actually leads us to something worse. It leads to this potential for internal destruction. It doesn't have the capacity to free you. So look at verses 2 and 3. This is, he's praying against his enemies here. David says, let them be put to shame and confusion who seek my life. Let them be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let them be turned back because of their shame who say, ah, ah. Self-help leads to this internal destruction. Now again, just look at the text. David is being relentlessly attacked by someone who seeks his life. 
and someone who delights in hurting him. That's, who, that's who's after him. That's why we call it abuse. People delight in hurting you. That, that's, what, that's what we call it. That's what he was going through. Why is self-help in these moments so destructive? I want to say, first off, if you go back to James 3, I know this is a bold statement, but I'm saying it's true, and I think the Bible proves it's true because it's demonic. Self-help is demonic. And if it does, it's only going to lead one direction. Right? So James 3 again. We go back and grab verse 14. If you ever had to write a paper and you use the word this too much, if you've got some kind of grammar or your teacher will come back and says, what is this talking about? So verse 15 says this. So let's go back to verse 14. Let's see what this is. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. Because bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, it's not the wisdom that comes from above. And if it doesn't come from above, it comes where? From below. It is earthly. It is unspiritual. It is what? Demonic. What is the devil's goal and purpose for your life? To destroy you. And listen, if that light bulb hadn't come on yet, it needs to come on this morning. He wants to destroy you. He wants to destroy your family. He does not have his best intentions in your life. He does not have a team. He's out to destroy everybody. We're all made in the image of God, and he wants to destroy us all. Even those who think they serve him, who do serve him, he ultimately will destroy them. The goal is to remember, we all know what, what Peter said, but do you remember what, how, what, what Satan said himself when God asked him in the book of Job, what have you been doing? What have you been doing, Satan? He said, uh, for God, the Lord said to Satan, Job 1-7, From where have you come, Satan? Answered the Lord, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. That's what he's doing. He's doing that right now. Ephesians 6.12 says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cognitive powers, against the spiritual forces in heavenly places. And what Ephesians doesn't say is so just put on a positive way of thinking and everything's going to be all right. No, what he goes on to say is you better put on the spiritual armor that God supplies or you're in trouble. Not positive thinking. If self-help is true, here's the point. This is logical. Just, just think about it with your mind. If self-help is true, if all those Disney movies are right, and all this mess that they teach in school and colleges are true, then in the worst moments of your life, it's on you to make it right. It's on you. Injustice, abuse, being cheated on, being left alone, being abandoned. If self-help is right, then it's on you to make it right. And if you don't make it right, listen, this is what happened. It will consume you and it will destroy you. It's not a livable belief system. It's not. 
It is a belief system. You just think about it. That when you don't fix this, that you feel like that everybody's told you that you have the capacity to fix, it will leave you on a bed of suicide or in an addiction, of, a lifestyle of addiction. That's the reality of a view, worldview that just don't work. By contrast, Colossians 1.12 tells us as believers to give thanks. Four. It says, give thanks to the Father, Colossians 1.12, who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints and light. Verse 13, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son. It is in him we have Redemption and the forgiveness of his sins. In other words, grace gives. It gives to those who need help. What does it give them? Forgiveness, inheritance, a forever identity, a forever destiny. You can't get that on your own. So God's help is eternally freeing. It is eternally, it is internally David's life is not an easy life, but his life is a life that is saturated through by prayer because he knows he needs God's help. He knows what he needs to labor for, and he knows what he needs to entrust to God. That's why it's freeing. Listen, that's why it's freeing. There's no free... To say you embrace Christianity, but you keep refusing to entrust to God what belongs to God. Certain things belong to Him. Life belongs to Him. Doesn't do me any good nor you any good to see how long I'm going to live. It ain't mine. My life belongs to Him. He has my days allotted. He's not going to tell me what it is. So I might as well... Trust Him, enjoy Him, and enjoy the lot one life that I have. Amen? Giving thanks to Him because He's given me one life. That's freedom. That's freedom. And you don't get it in anywhere else. And what He's doing here in verses 2 and 3 is He's entrusting His enemies to God. He's telling God, turn them back. Make it. The language here is put them on public display. They're putting me on public display. Remember we saw this picture of the cross? He said, you put them on public display. So in the times of injustice, the times of brutality in your life, this is what we do. We simply hand them over to God. We hand these situations over to God. We let them do Him deal with them. And we walk in the freedom of a God that always does what's right. It's just why justice is a dominant theme in Psalms. You've got to stick your head in the sand not to see it. Romans 12, 21 says it this way, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is not some kind of sit back and trust God and do nothing. This is we trust God and we do what He's told us to do. But here's what I don't do. Trusting God is not doing what God told me that I'm not responsible to do. Or what God said, hey, hey, brother, that's mine. I didn't give you that. God 
help leads us to dependence. And that dependence leads us to freedom. But there's still more to fight for. Number three, self-help offers us temporal escape. But God's help, communal joy. Verse four says, may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. Remember, self-help doesn't have the ability to offer us any kind of transcendent help. Because if you embrace it, it's just you. It's you, big boy, big girl. You you embrace that, it's all on you. Self-help promotes this. You just need coping mechanisms to help deal with life. That'll take care of it. Just... Just find you one. Here's the problem with us frail humans. Coping mechanisms quickly become life-dominating sins. We call that addictions. We begin to these seemingly simple, harmless things that we used to cope with becomes to make demands on us that we have to answer to. we got to have those things before we can get out of bed or before we can go to work or before we can get around other people or before something. That's when you know a good thing has become a bad thing. But listen, this is all the therapeutic world has to offer you because it's self-help is what they rely on. If someone takes back control from you, then you yourself must take back control. It's well-intentioned. But listen, my point is it leads to destruction. Whether whether it is through cutting or anorexia or overeating or drinking or smoking or tendencies like OCD, the 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 list is endless. All we do is end up exchanging one mechanism for another. This one's really bad because it's hurting you, so let's just put on something that hurts you just a little bit less. But God is offering something here that is almost unexpected. A joy that is communal. Communal simply means it is only experienced. It is only received in community with other people. There's no other way to receive it. The other one will leave you in isolation. This one will bring you into a family. This is the point. He changes. Notice he changes. It's been individual. It's been me and my. And now he says, May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. Now he's bringing other people into this prayer. Brothers and sisters, we are created for community. We are created this way. We are created for family. You know that's true. People who wander off like the prodigal end up realizing the same thing that the prodigal son realized. Stinks out there. I need family. (laughs) Going back home. God offers you a home. When you're saved, He brings you into a family. This is a habit. By the way, we must learn to embrace that COVID broke. 
It's a habit you must pick back up. It is, it is a key to our joy. This is almost ironic because what we see is a man who is desperate. We see him praying first for other righteous people. He's praying for them. Those who seek God find their joy and find their rest in God. Why in such times of urgency would we pray for other people? Why does that work? Well, for all kinds of reasons, but if you got your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Kings. 1 Kings. I want you to see somebody. I, th- I think you, you'd really relate to this, him in this situation. I, I would challenge you to read the whole story later. A man named Elijah. You see, one thing praying for other people in times of really having, when you're really having a bad season or a bad day does, is to remind you that there's other righteous people in this world that are going through the same thing you're going through. Amen? That's helpful. Elijah's having a bad day here, brothers and sisters. He's went from the mountain to a cave. If you, if you don't familiar with that story, just you'll have to read that yourself. It's not in the sermon notes for today. I want you to see, look at verse 9, 1 Kings 19. Look at verse 9. Elijah came to a cave and he lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and he said, said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? It's <laughs> uh, a good question, isn't it? I think God would say that to me all the time. Stephen, what are you doing? Listen to what he said, verse 10. He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord and the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, am left. They seek my life to take it away. I'm all by myself going through this situation. Nobody cares. I did what you said. And look what's happened to me. Poor me. I'm in a cave by myself. And everybody else has turned their back on you. I'm the only one. The only one going through this. Interesting. You got this where God is going to speak to his servant. And so God brings an earthquake. He didn't speak to him in the earthquake. Then he brought a great fire. Didn't speak to him in the fire. God wasn't in anyone. How did he speak to this panic-stricken brother? In just a small whisper. It's important. We don't have to drum up false fire here to hear from God. We need only to open our Bibles and be quiet before Him to hear from Him. And that's when He speaks. When you steal yourself. So He calms this panic-stricken brother. And notice what He tells him. Verse 13, he said, there comes again. What are you doing? Verse 14, he says the same thing. Look at verse 15. And the Lord said to him, go. Mm, no, he, wasn't, he wasn't expecting that, was he? Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazel to be the king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nemesh, you shall anoint to be the king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Japhat of Abel-Meholah, 
You shall anoint to be the prophet in your place, and the one who escapes from the sword of Hazel shall Jehu put to death, and the one who escaped from the sword of Jehu, Elisha, shall put to death. Yet, verse 18, I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all, all the knees of those that have not bowed to Baal, and everyone who have not kissed him. There's a lot going on there. Did you get all that? Some things he's doing, some things God told him that I'm about to do. We are never alone in what we are going through. God has people behind us. God has people beside of us. And God has people after us. We just need to finish well. We just need to do what God has told us to do. Because our Elisha is coming. We need to get up. And we need to do what he said. So you see... Relying on God's help is not some kind of sitting in a chair and I'm just going to let go, let God. No, no. God speaks. God brings clarity. He, he calms us down. That's important. And he reorients us. You just, just go that way. Just, just say that. Just do that. That's what's next. This is what's best next. You just do that. But not only that. Look at the... Back to Psalm 70 now. We also pray with other righteous people. He's not only praying for them, he's praying with them. They're, they're with him. This prayer is a communal prayer. And what are they praying? Look at the end, the verse 4, the second section. May those who love your salvation say evermore, God is great. David's situation hasn't changed. The guy's still nipping at his heels. But, it, but he has brought himself in with other believers and he is praying. They are praying together and this is their prayer. God is great. What is he saying? What does that word great mean? It means great means a twisted cord. That's what it means. A braided rope. It means self-help is you clinging to a fishing line that's not meant for you to hang on. And you're just hanging on to it. hope it don't break. Where God and his people is a braided rope designed by his creator to hold the weight. James 5.16 shows us we should surround ourselves with praying people who know how to pray in faith. James 5.16 says, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of the righteous person has great power as is working. Verse 17, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on earth. Then he prayed again and heavens gave rain and earth bore its fruit. I want people praying beside of me like that. Amen. Listen, when it all falls to pieces, I know who to call. Right? I'm going to call people who pray like that. So do you see what's happening here? David's dependent prayer has moved him from panic to calm. From chaos to confident. But he's not done. For still got one more verse. Verse 5. 
This is probably the most critical. That is, self-help is destructive because of where it comes from, pride. So it either destructive pride or Christ-exalting humility. Notice how he ends. He comes back to the individual, back to the personal. He said, but I, verse 5, but I am poor and needy. Hasten to me, O God. You're my help and my deliverer, O Lord. Don't delay. You see, self-help breeds destructive pride. I would even say more clearly, it's motivated by it. You know, we, we talked about that some weeks ago in John Root fruit. We talked about what is down in our dirt, motivating the actions, producing what's hanging on our tree or what's not hanging on our tree. And here's the truth. What's in your dirt, same as in my dirt, is pride. But listen, this is what self-esteem breeds. It lives on it, has to have it. Has to have pride. It's, it's, it's its main fuel. It's fundamentally motivating. And whether it's outright self, whether it's self pity, oh man, I'm just never going to amount to anything, or outright arrogance, I got it. It has within itself, pride does, the seeds of destruction in our life. And most of us have a life that proves it. And so David's hope and prayer at the end of the day is that God's going to help him. Uh, Isaiah 2.12 was Isaiah's prayer too. It says, For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. That's what... David's praying for David knows this. He's counting on it. And what he's not going to do is find himself to be in one of the arrogant. He said, no, no, I'm going I'm to be humble. Because when we pull up, and this is hard. It's a, it's a lifelong pursuit to pull up them roots of pride in our life. But it is necessary so that we can cultivate in our soul Christ-exalting humility. Just a couple verses and, and we're done. Begin in James. Love James. James is, James is the man when it comes to application. Uh, James 4, 6 says, Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world must make himself an enemy of God. You, you see, there's just two choices here. Or do you suppose that it is for no purpose that Scripture says he yearns to jealous jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, verse 6, that he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Verse 7, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. And so, to ask for God is not an expression of weak faith. The great faith. <laughs> you say, I can't do it. It's not an expression of weak faith. It's an expression. I got great faith because I know I've, I can't do it. I know I've messed up everything that I've ever done in my own strength. 
another prophet. Jeremiah said it this way. Jeremiah 9, 23 says, Thus saith the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him boast, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love and justice and righteousness in the earth. For in such things I delight, declares the Lord. So where am I pursuing help? That's the simple question. The reality of God's word is either from God or anywhere else. God or anywhere else. The anywhere else is going to lead to bondage and destruction. And so, just let me read this over you. Psalms 121, verse 1 says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He won't let your foot be moved. He's the one who keeps because he doesn't slumber. Behold, he's the one who keeps Israel because he don't ever sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is the shade on your right hand. So the sun won't strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep you for when you go out and when you come in forever. The question is this morning, do we trust him? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, for the comfort of it, for the strength of it, for the truth of it. Now, Lord, we want to do, we come here now for worship, not to get anything else from you. We come to respond to you. We come to you because you're our God and you're our Lord and we long to worship you, to to delight in you, to enjoy you, to have fellowship with you, to express, express our gratefulness and our dedication to you. We come to say no matter what we're going through at this moment, you are a good father who's taken wonderful care of us. And so, Lord, we just ask you to receive our worship. To remember, Lord, that you said you would. You said that you would be with us, and so we believe that you are. Lord, we thank you as I talked to a brother who had been through so much in his life this week. That he can just come to you and just be truthful with where he's at. Lord, that is true of all of us today. That you can handle where we are. And you can lead us to where you want us to go. And so we say, here we are, God. Help us to go where you want us to go. Receive our worship now as an offering to you. In Jesus' name, amen.